You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. Good afternoon, Bobo. How you doing? Good. How you doing? I'm doing very, very well, thank you. I'm kind of excited about today. We got one of the old school, one of the guys we uh, knew about when we were coming up in the game. It was one of those guys that was kind of legendary, you know, been in the game for a long time and proud to say he's become a good friend over the last several decades. Yeah, yeah. I, I always call uh, th- this particular gentleman's uh, generation, so to speak, um, not his real generation, but his Bigfoot generation as being like the second generation. You know, he's not the old, old timers like, you know, uh, Peter Byrne and Grover Krantz and John Green and DeHinden. Not like that generation, but the one that came after it. And in a lot of ways, it's almost like a silent generation because even though they were doing great field work, there was this time where, uh, you know, the John Greens and stuff were still publishing, but the new folks coming in, like our gentleman today, um, hadn't started producing their own work yet. So, uh, and now we're getting the benefit of their added wisdom to the uh, to the database and the the data set in general. It, it's kind of neat to have this guy on. And as you said, we grew up on on these guys' work essentially in the 1990s and early 2000s on the internet. You could learn from these guys out there because they were pioneering the the whole internet part of it, and they're like the unsung heroes essentially, as far as I'm concerned. And I'm I'm so pleased to be able to call this man and his colleagues my friend. Bigfoot is one of those things where, you know, your idols can become your friends. And I think that's really, really neat. Well, we got to spill the beans who we're talking about. Well, we're talking about the one and only the legendary Joe Bielart. Uh, Joe, welcome to the show, man. It's so good to have you on. You make me laugh. <laughs> I, I, I'm quite honored to be on your show. I really appreciate it. And I've known Bobo for a quite a long time and you not quite so long but uh to be on your show it means a lot to me so thank you yeah joe is the original uh bigfoot well i gotta hold the ray crow he's the only guy i was really in contact with besides uh freitas when i had my first encounter then five nights later i had my sighting joe was the guy that took my original report oh really yeah do you remember that joe I remember it, and I remember talking to uh, Bobo several times. I think I called him James back then, and uh, and I cannot remember what kind of vehicle you drove. I think it was a small red pickup, but I can't remember. It was, yeah, a little red Toyota. A little red Toyota. I can't believe you big guys roaring around at night up in that box canyon in that little old Toyota. Anyway. The speaker was strapped on the hood doing call blasting, driving up and down with no lights on. Right. <laughs> anyway, uh, Ray, I, I can't remember how it all worked out, but I kept that issue of the track record, a uh, couple of them actually, when I sent in the report. So, Well, I'm sure I have it here at the museum. I have a couple complete sets of the track record at the museum here. I'll have to look that up. On file or paper? Uh, both. That's impressive. Well, you're at a very impressionable age in your life, Bobo. <laughs> you always have been, though. <laughs> yeah, well, enough about me. What about Joe? So what got you into the Bigfoot game, Joe? Like, did you have an experience or just growing up hearing about it? What got you going on investigating? The reason, the reason why I'm interested in this is because uh, late one 
winter afternoon in the Oregon coast range. Uh, I had a looking, me and my two nephews were out looking for deer and there was one standing beside a logging road. Uh, it wasn't actually standing. It was crouched down and it stood up and looked at us and I was in a full size Bronco and then it, uh, wandered into the hills. Oh, a Sasquatch was nosed down by the logging road. I thought you meant a deer because, okay, so you saw a Sasquatch. Yes, and it was, uh, you know, root blowdown, and the root blowdown was there for many years. I took, like, Todd and East and a couple other people up there to see it. It was in kind of a remote area. Finally, that particular log got a little notoriety, and the, some logger came in and just took that in a way. But, uh, I, it's not it's not something that I really want to dwell on, but the thing is is that you don't uh you never forget something like that and to a certain degree you wanna replicate the experience and that's why I've spent thousands of hours, hundreds of days, many thousands of miles, hours and hours of hiking trying to uh to see one again. And we're all the beneficiaries of the of your work as well because you've published that book, um, the Oregon Bigfoot Highway book, and it is by far the best seller in the museum here. By far, heads and shoulders above any other book that we have, um, and, and I, it's even the top three highest selling items in the shop actually um and it's just, just because it's so full of great information and it's a local book because you, you it's written about and if, if you haven't by the way if our listeners haven't picked this up and you're interested in sasquatch reports in this part of oregon kind of the northwest part of oregon this is a must-have book um and it's basically a compilation of your research as well as your colleagues research um from S. Cicada down to Detroit Lake all along the Clackamas River and the Highway 224, which you have now dubbed the Bigfoot Scenic Highway. Yes, I uh, was able to put this book together because of my co-author. I'm the actual writer and the typist, the clerk typist, but uh, my co-author Cliff Olson lived at the uh, power station, the PG&E power station for 13 plus years, so he knew Forest Service people, loggers, of course, the PG&E people, and uh, stories were given to me that literally would be never even breathed about to anybody else. Uh, so he, Cliff was my co-author by value and virtue. There's two things about the upper Clackamas area. Unfortunately, part of it's been burnt big, big time the last year. but. It mirrors one of Dr. Meldrum's theories of a what I call a standard standard Sasquatch area, which I've been using that term since the late 1990s, where reproductive groups live. And Dr. Meldrum's theory, I turned out to be a blind test for it. There's about a, it's about a thousand square miles. There are five or six females in well-defined territorial areas, obviously a male probably roving around, and then transitory males. In my book, there's three migratory routes that have been documented, first verbally by uh, the, the, one, the major routes right along the edge of the uh, Warm Springs Indian Reservation. And at least three different Native Americans from there have told me those things go back and forth twice a year. Uh, there's two other major trails, 
that one of which in ancient, before white men came, circled around through Portland, followed the Tualatin River out towards the coast range. And then there's a, a trail that goes up roughly Highway 35 to Hood River. Now, here's a little, I, I'm not going to bore you with a lot of stories. I I was a storyteller at eight times at Home Valley, the Home Valley get-together uh, when they were still having it. But a a prospector in the Lewis River, the upper Lewis River, had a Bigfoot come in one night to his camp. And, of course, it disturbed him. But it indicated it wanted something to eat. So he... He cut off some canned meat, which basically means spam. Might have been uh, corned beef. And then the thing came back a couple more times, and then it brought in a younger one. And he recognized this male by this white splotch on his head. Now, this is going back to the migratory roots. The upper, upper Lewis River obviously snows in. So he went down to southwestern Oregon, to the gold district down southwest of Grants Pass. And guess what? Old White Spot comes walking into camp wanting some canned meat. So it obviously migrated from the Lewis River area all the way down to southwest Washington or southwest Oregon near the California border. That's just one example of the history type things that I've dug out and put in my book. Now, one of the things that sets your book aside is that, uh, for the most part, you're not that bashful about giving locations away either. Um, I mean, some of them obviously should be kept quiet because there's ongoing activity, et cetera. But you actually have a tremendous number of uh, GPS coordinates in your book as well. Well, I think that uh, given Google Earth, I, I don't give away the real secret spots, okay? Places we really go, but you're near them. You're with, sometimes you're within a mile or two of them. Uh, you just got to get out there and get with the program. But I, I put in the GPS coordinates so you can use Google Earth and quote unquote fly over the area and see what we're talking about. I think that's very important. I think it's important to understand the terrain and the place and in places how rugged it is. And you can also measure in Google Earth things like uh, vertical distances. Like the time I, I've come upon a couple of fatality accidents over the years, and one of them went down about 400 and some feet. The thing is, is that on Google Earth, you could check that stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of it. And believe it or not, it's on the website, but one of the people that really got into the book went through and checked every one of those and labeled them, every one of those GPS coordinates, and there's quite a number of them. He got a hold of me and told me that one of them ended up in some place in some island in South Pacific, South Southwest Pacific. So I had to change. I had to change that one. <laughs> well, you know, there's mistakes in every book. I think is a fair way to say it. Now, um, you mentioned uh, Cliff Olson earlier and how he lived at the PGE site. And just so our listeners know, because I mean, not everybody is familiar with our area. Um, that would be three links, right? Which is that's, that's uh, um, exactly right, right? Yeah, which is a, a, how many miles down the Clackamas from Estacada is that? What is it? Probably about eight. It's probably close to fifteen, but I, I don't know. You know it, I, I'm not sure, really sure. That's that's a subjective notice. It's it's kind of a curvy, slow road if you're driving safe. So. Who, and who cares, you know? 
Yeah, I figured a ripple book, ripple brook is eighteen, so I figured about maybe halfway or down there or something like that. But it's out in the middle of the woods, deep in the deep in the heart of Bigfoot country, anyway. So he would be right, very well placed to hear Bigfoot stories from his colleagues and workers. Actually, actually, they had there's a, quite a number of Bigfoot stories right from there. One of which was they had a grade school, and uh, where the old lumber mill used to be, Silvertip Lumber Mill. There was a housing development there, and PG&E had a housing development, and they had a grade school up through grade 8, I think it was, right there at uh, Three Links. And the kids started reporting seeing a hairy, naked man watching the school bus go by. So they basically organized a posse and looked into this, and of course they didn't find anything. But uh, there's a whole bunch of sightings, and I mean a whole bunch of sighting reports and footprint casts. And I even had uh, Jimmy Chilcutt. I took some fingerprints, a fingerprint item, and sent it down to him. And he said, either this is a uh, very rare type of pigskin glove or it's a new hominid. The fingerprints on the bottle that I sent him. Well, now, Cliff was just one member of the team that used to hang out with and do Bigfoot stuff quite often in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, some of the other team members, though, uh, may or may not be familiar to our listeners. Can you talk about some of them? Uh, Trapper Steve, for example, or uh, Tom Powell, or any, any of these other characters that you oh, used to God. hang out Tom with? Tom Powell is great. He is an absolutely great campmate, uh, and he's written a couple excellent, excellent books. He's a, he's a science teacher. And uh, very well versed, yeah. uh, just a great guy. Uh, Steve Kylie unfortunately got cancer and died way, way, way too soon. I learned a lot in the Marine Corps, but he gave some basic outdoor skills to me. Uh, one of which is his look for the little things, the things that are out of place. Look for the things that aren't quite right, and then what to do when you're looking around. Beaver dams. Every everything loves beaver dams. Scent goes up in the daytime with the sun, goes down with the moon at night, and uh, he he was a wealth of just practical information about the outdoors. He 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 was truly a mountain man, not quite in the right era. Now um, he cast some footprints, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Our first footprint we cast, that was back in 1998, I think it was, or about then. And it was in it was in February and March. And we were out wandering around up behind Ripple Brook. And we came upon this footprint. And it looked kind of odd, but it was very distinctive. And it was in mud. So it was forecast for uh, snow the next day. So we put out a surveyor's flag next to it and came back up the next week after the snow melted off and cast it. And it looked, it looked kind of weird. It wasn't quite right. And then here's Tom Powell coming back into the picture. Tom Powell got a bunch of Frank Canister's track casts. And Frank Canister worked on the uh, western slopes of the Cascade Mountains. Uh, South, south, far, about 30 miles south of Portland. And Tom drags out this cast from Frank Canister's that was taken over towards Goat Mountain, and it matched exactly our cast, and it was, a, it was like a broken foot. 
like a broken toe. And it matched exactly our cast. That cast, though, caused, I spoke eight times at the Home Valley deal, and a person there got so enraged when he saw that cast that he broke it, smashed it. Said, these things are foolish to even think about this stuff. Anyway, that's uh, there's a picture in the book of the raw cast with uh, with Steve holding it up. But we thought it was pretty funny that we thought for years it might be a cast or it might not, and then all of a sudden Tom Powell drags out a Kinesters collection, a uh, the very same footprint, and that means that it traversed a dividing range and at least at least thirty air miles of terrain to get from one sight to the other. Yeah, it's quite a distance there. Uh, now, um, what other people, who, who else did you used to hang out with and do research with out in the woods that I'm missing here? Did you get out with Ray Crow in the woods? Well, I went out with him several times, but Ray really wasn't a track guy. He was more, uh, he was more into publicity. He, the biggest thing that ever happened with Ray was uh, a guy from France was here, Jean-Paul. I can't remember his last name, doggone it. It was not John Paul Debonet. It was another John Paul. Uh, John Paul Debonet was a good friend of mine. He wrote The Wild Man in in, uh, in Europe. Uh, he was a PhD. He was a professor at a big-time French university. He actually came here and uh, uh, twice, and I talked. I'd seen him visually twice. And anyway, uh, this fellow, we came upon where one skidded down a embankment and left hair marks and footprints but he he jumped off the off the slope and i thought he was going to break both knees because he landed just so solid i thought oh my god fortunately he's a little wiry guy so if it was somebody like me i would have probably ruptured both knee drums but uh that was quite a day but ray uh I didn't spend much time up in the hills with Ray because he only wanted me to show people around. And I don't mind showing people around, but I don't like to be exhibited. Yeah, he, uh, he, I mostly learned about geology from him and not too much about Bigfoot. Well, I found, uh, I found an exposed uh, vein of quartz up there that he was extremely interested in. But then he, too, got uh, ill and passed on. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. The thing is geology, biology, astronomy. There's so much to do in the mountains. You can't, it's very hard to use your time. It's, it's, it's the days just, and nights are just not long enough. And to give you a feel for how many days, some of these are thanks to uh, Cliff and his expeditions, where I was an invited guest. But I spent I spend around ten to fifteen nights a year, except for last year, the COVID year, in the mountains. You got to put in your time. It's it's the Hukin Sullivan rule. Uh, Hukin was a Oregon State biologist. Sullivan was a uh, science teacher. And their rule was you spend 200 hours out in the field and you might find one thing that relates to Bigfoot, either a sound, a footprint, or perhaps a sighting. Uh, 
both of them claim one claimed 12 sightings and one the other one claimed 13 but all they got at best was the fabled uh, blob squatch photographs because things didn't, just never go right when you're trying to photograph these things. Oh, and I didn't know that uh, they had claimed any sightings and let alone got a blob, blob squatch picture of them. Oh, yes, absolutely. You have to you have to talk. You have to talk to them. I mean, well, they're both dead now. It's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah I uh, unfortunately, well, I think Jack might still be around. I've been looking for him. I know I tracked down his son. Um, I haven't spoken to his son, but I know where his son works. Um, and everybody I've spoken to, they seem to think that he retired around the year 2000 and died not too long after that. But I can't verify that. And with a name like Jack Sullivan, it's very difficult to find records that are the correct guy. We all knew him from uh, um, In Search Of. He was in one of those In Search Of episodes wearing the cop glasses and sitting in the grass. Really cool. Yeah, I have a couple of uh, leads. But um, yeah, I spoke to uh, some witnesses out by Colton last February who saw one up on, uh, I think it was Green Mountain, if I remember right. And um, they had gone to Colton Middle School or High School, which, wherever he taught, and they remembered him as a teacher. Yeah, actually, he was a roving science teacher, high school level, to the smaller schools in uh, the North Marion County School District. He was a pretty knowledgeable person. He he had a master's degree in science from something I can't remember what. It would be very interesting to speak to uh, his heirs or him if he's still alive. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He and I talked once about 1999 some, for some extent, and uh, you know what he told me? And I'd only been doing that for about seven years. He said, "You weren't ready for the truth yet." And I don't know what the hell he meant by that, but I've been still searching for it. <laughs> I mean, you aren't ready for the truth yet. Is there one thing that really stuck out, like that you learned about Sasquatch's other behavior that really st- struck, like, like, wow, that's, you know what I mean? Like where you learn something about like their habits or their diet or lifestyles or anything that really stuck out to you, or, like, like really struck you? Bobo, that's a really good question. No. One thing that I know and I do, and I must disagree with how our host, Cliff, does it, is I believe in night walks. Growing up on the ranch where there was no TV and no, basically no radio in north central Nebraska in the Sand Hills, you learn to walk at night to experience stuff. When you're in the Marine Corps, you learn to walk at night a lot. At night when I go up camping, I try and sleep during the day and spend as much of the night awake as I can and always go for a night walk. Now, there's two cravats to the night walk. Number one, don't walk on a trail. There's two unstable footing. Number two, walk on a logging road away from the forest side of the road or at least down the middle, so some damn cougar doesn't jump on you and chew you up, okay? I've seen four cougars within, uh, the furthest one was away was 20 feet. And the third thing is, is go out and walk, and hopefully you're in an area where these things may exist, and you go back to camp and wait, and then about 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning, if they're interested in you, they'll come around and stop into camp. And I've got, I'm not, I, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I've got 15 stories of things that, of happenings of where they came, come into camp. 
uh, one of which in 2019 was almost terrifying because another fellow that was with us, a Marine, with four years of experience, and he works in a very high-risk job. He's a commercial diver. Uh, we go out for a long night walk. Actually, actually, the professor that was with us, I have six professors, seven professors that are on my email list. We go out for a long night walk and come back in, and, and John and I are both, he's sleeping on his cot outside. I sleep out in the open of my truck. And we can hear this thing walking down the gravel road towards us. The professor and his wife and his mother-in-law are asleep in a tent. And John and I have our flashlights ready. And that night we decided that we were going to hit it with a flashlight. And you know what? That thing walked right past John and I, probably certainly within 10 feet of John, 15 feet of me. And neither one of us had, for some reason, our muscles would not let us raise up and take a picture of it, take a turn on their flashlights. And the thing walked over to the tent. The woman absolutely screamed, which brings up a whole nother thing of the woo, but I don't want to talk about that. Had this most horrible nightmare. And the thing was throwing gravel on it, and then it walked off. So the next day, they moved up to another campsite. John and I could only stay one night. And guess what? The next night, something walked up there. Can't. She has another. This time, she doesn't scream. And it starts throwing gravel on her tent. I mean, how bizarre is that? But walking at night in a safe manner so you don't get mauled by a cougar. I think there's been two cougar kills in the last three years in, in Oregon will attract them to camp, you know. And that's not that's not saying call blasting or anything. Just just have a nice fire, just be pleasant, just talk, you know, that kind of thing. Now Joe, when you speak to a witness, uh, someone who claims to have seen a Sasquatch, um, what do you have in mind? What sort of questions are you asking? Uh, what are you watching or listening for rather? Um, tell us about a little bit of your your technique, I guess, for lack of a better term, when you're dealing directly with witnesses. Well, I have a little bit of legal training in that regard, so I, it's, uh, I, uh, I listen. I like to hear the same story two or three times and listen for inconsistencies. I don't like anybody that gets real animated, and I avoid. Actually, I avoid doing witness interviews, except when I was, for instance, writing the book. You know, if it's a clear, concise, precise recollection of what happened that's good if they're the ums and ahs start then that's bad i went through naval justice school and i did i was inter i interrogated a lot of people and you kind of learn what you're looking for now, what do you think the value of sighting reports is at the end of the day? Is it just a matter of, uh, well, Sasquatches were there at a certain time, or is it the behavior, or what, what, what do you think is the most valuable thing out of doing witness interviews when you do them? Well, I think there's three things, and you hit on each one of them. The first value is, where was the report? Uh, that way, you can establish patterns. Uh, and I got to say, the BFRO website seems to have some really good reporting. 
Uh, the second thing is, is that behaviors are listed and in the rear of my book, I list quite a number of behaviors that were observed. And I've edited two, two more books. I've actually edited like five books on Sasquatch. But I've insisted that two authors put in behaviors observed in their appendixes. And uh, quite frankly, it's kind of, it's kind of consistent. But uh, why can't we get a good photograph of these things? The, the Patterson-Gimlin film is certainly the best yet. And in that film that that lady sent to you from uh, near Roseburg, the one sitting watching the traffic on the road, but that's, that was quite far away. Yeah, 300 yards, in fact. There, so there's some major questions about what these things are, that people see them, but there's no scientific proof that's widely accepted. Yeah, science is a very high level of proof. Uh, you know, they have, they have very high expectations as far as what they will accept as evidence. Um, it's also one of these problems, and I've talked to you know Meldrum about this a fair amount too. People say, you know, well, what's the best evidence for Bigfoot? And they they want a soundbite answer, and there, there really is no soundbite answer. You can say this film or that fo- footprint photograph or you know or that the cast or whatever, but um, it's just so superficial in that way. And unfortunately, I think our whole society has grown more superficial because of um, the soundbite culture we live in. Um, whereas the best evidence for Bigfoot is clearly how. All of the available evidence supports the other bits of evidence. You know, the flexibility in the mid part of the foot can be observed in the Patterson-Gimlin film, for example. Um, like those two things have to be looked in together in context for that to be meaningful. You just can't say, oh, look, our foot's bending in the or, or look at this little bump here in the, in the cast. That means something. Well, it only means something when you look at the whole of the, of the evidence and then compare it to one another. That's the best evidence for Bigfoot. But people don't want to hear that because they, they don't have the attention span or they don't have the understanding or they, they're, they're missing something. Um, it's really unfortunate. And certainly science has a very high bar to clear for evidence and should as well. Um, not, nobody should be believed necessarily. There's evidence and evidence should be weighed. Well, the, la- the, the key lack of evidence is a physical specimen. But uh, the thing is, is that even if a physical specimen is brought in, and I had a roaring argument on this over, and I don't even want to talk about the venue, but basically uh, the learned scientist said, if you bring in one specimen, we'll label label it as as a bizarre accident. And uh, I also, the, the the story's long, but we collected some possible DNA evidence, good DNA evidence uh, from a corn cob, several corn cobs that were eaten. And they were sent to uh, a lab in Texas. And I was absolutely astounded that the director of the lab called me and inquired in great depth of how we acquired these corn cobs. And he told me and this was on a referral of one of my PhD friends. Uh, he told me, well, you know, this, uh, this DNA is going to be 96% human. And I go, well, I, I don't know that. And he says, it's going to be 96% human. And then he says, if you really want us to do the job to make it court-level evidence, scientifically graded DNA evidence, it's going to cost you thirty-five to $40,000. That sounds cheap to some of the other quotes. 
Uh, could be. I don't know. If, but 35, I didn't have 35 or 40 grand. That was only four years ago. But, uh, you know, you can collect DNA evidence, but again, you're lacking the physical specimen. Who are we to say? Yeah, I don't know. The whole thing will be just so convoluted at the end of the day. Yeah, there's a, there's a famous incident south of Jackson, Wyoming, where I think it's three hunters from Ohio went elk hunting. And one of them shot a Bigfoot. And they decided to leave it there. And this is like 15 years ago. And, uh, and it's down near Hoback Junction. And they decided to leave the specimen there and go home and forget it. And one guy was so torn up by the incident that he actually flew back to Wyoming and got the Wyoming Fish and Wildlife people to go out there with him. And they couldn't find it. But he was so convinced that they'd shot a human-like creature that he, he, he took it upon himself to... Uh, and the expense and the time to go back and, and re-explore the incident. But the, the creature was gone. Now, Joe, didn't uh, you've told me about a photograph you had a chance to look at taken down the Willamette River, am I correct? No, it was on the Tualatin River. It was a series, was a series of seven photographs, and uh, this is all hearsay stuff. I'd rather not even go into it, but they were... Basically, I should have stole the damn negatives, but I didn't, so they're lost. <laughs> you're, you're too honest a man. Oh, well. No, no. I mean, honestly, I, I offered the, the people that had them $100. I had a $100 bill in my, or five twenties in my pocket. It caused great consternation. It, those, those were extremely wonderful photographs, very close up. Can you describe them? Uh, there were seven photographs. What it was, was there was a big birthday party with the piñatas, and what they had was a disposable camera. So there were like three photographs of the birthday party. Then the men decide to go down to the Tualatin and drink beer and fish. So they go down to the Tualatin, and the first photograph is one of these things kneeling on the ground next to the river, cupping water and it's long and lanky uh not not well built it's not it's very th it's very thin from what you might want to think and then it sees them they're up behind a blackberry bush and it sees them and it approaches them at that point they take another photograph and there's a female walking away from the scene then the next photograph is the thing comes up right next to the uh, blackberry bush and shows its teeth squarely. And the teeth are square. And the lips are small. And the eyes and the ears are small. And the hair is soft and furry. So it shows its teeth. And then it turns and walks off. And it's got hair... To me, it looked like reminiscent to a, a gorilla back's hair that I've seen in the photographs. And then the last photograph is of two of them walking away down through the Tualatin brush. Now, uh, I offered to buy those negatives, and they it really upset them. I think, I don't know all their motivations, okay? And I didn't feel like stealing them, which I probably should have, but I didn't. Anyway, that's that's the basic descriptions of short hair, summertime, 
youthful appearance, uh, square teeth, pattern hair on the back. Could there be no way it was a costume? Oh, there's no, there's no way in hell it was a costume. I, I had, I had these photographs for an hour and a half, and I was dumbstruck. I absolutely was dumbstruck. I tried to call Peter Byrne. I couldn't get his number. Can you imagine how many photographs are going to surface after discovery of the species? That people people have been sitting on photographs for years, and I hear. I mean, Bobo's told me several stories of pieces of footage that he's either seen or heard about. Um, you have one. I, I've got some story. Yeah, there's so many things that are going to be coming to light after discovery that could have helped the cause all along. Well, it could have helped, but a picture does not help the cause. It requires a physical specimen, probably two physical specimens. And uh, I'm somewhat reluctant to tell you about the... Uh, photographs I saw because it's hearsay evidence, certainly. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Let's talk about some of the people you've met over the years, uh, Joe, just because you've been in the game a long time now, and um, you've had the opportunity to cross paths with a lot of the greats. And uh, it'd be kind of nice to hear uh, your take on some of them or perhaps a story or two that you might have to offer. So let's start with someone I know that you cross paths with. Um, how about Renee DeHinden? Oh, man. I only met Renee DeHinden once in Larry Lund's basement museum. And Larry Lund was a great friend of Renee. And one day he called me and said, Renee will meet you and Steve Kiley. So I called up. Steve, this is a day before or something. So I called up Steve. We arranged some time. We drove up, and Renee had his his film viewer set up, his hand crank film viewer, and he allowed, believe it or not, he allowed me and Steve to look at his. I think it was a third generation film in that hand crank viewer, and we were there for over two hours. And you know what? Neither one of us finished the Patterson Gibbon film. There was so much to see in every frame at a real high definition level. It was unbelievable. Neither Steve nor I finished the film. And Renee was just a great gentleman, very inquisitive, full of questions. His reputation was he was a, a jerk, but he was not that at all. He was. You know, if, if somebody insults somebody else to their face or in the media or something, sure, you're going to be mad at them. But we both were invited up several times before his death, and we never could arrange to get up there and, and meet with him. But I can't say enough about Renee Hinden and how knowledgeable and polite he was. Oh, that's great to hear because so many people, myself included, often only see the the Henri Rene because obviously if he had something to say, he didn't care who was listening. He was going to say it. Um, and it's kind of, you know, I think sometimes the Bigfoot community has too much of that. And sometimes I think we don't have enough. I'm not quite sure, what, quite sure which way to go. But um, so many people think of him as so Henri and just full of piss and vinegar that um, it's good to hear that he was polite and kind and, and sensitive and stuff in person. Now, you're a student of history as well, and that's one of the joys of going out into the woods with you, because you can tell us about not only the geologic history, but also the human history of the area, whether we're talking about the indigenous people or the settlers, etc. 
some of these areas out in your in your research locations um, have a long history. Um, and I know you detail some of those histories in your book, but um, tell us, for people who haven't read your book and maybe want to pick it up or something, tell us a couple of stories about these historical markers that might indicate Sasquatches are around. And um, I'll start out with a really easy one for you. Um, how about Tarzan Springs? Tarzan Springs. Now, there is one that took a long time to figure out. There's a place up in the mountains called, as, as you noticed, Tarzan Springs. It's way up there, and it's in the general area of the prospecting areas. And I ended up sending letters to the Forest Service back east, to the local back east, blah, blah, blah. Ended up with a person calling me from the USGS at an archive center in, this This is all taken like two years, in uh, Colorado. And she says, we aren't going to put this in writing. But she says, what happened was, was that the surveyors, before there were any roads up there, wrote down in their logbook that we came upon an old prospector living with a group of apes. And I believe that's an almost exact quote of what she said. We came upon an old prospector living with a group of apes. Now, where I call Tarzan Springs in my book is actually on the hill right behind it. The The springs leak down in the pool that, that we, we call Tarzan Springs. It's easy, easy to identify that way. But uh, I found that astounding. And she said, we are not going to put that in writing because, you know, a lot of these uh, old surveyors did a lot of their surveying in taverns. So anyway, anyway that's how Tarzan Springs got its name. Now, of course, this is the time period when Tarzan had just been released as a book. Yeah, yeah. Tarzan had just been released like two years before, and it was only released like a year before in the U.S., so it was wildly popular. Yeah, and there were no, I mean, movies weren't at the, like like they are today. You know, the book books were kind of the driving cultural force. Now, what about, um, I've often wondered about Ogre Creek. I mean, I can think of why they probably called Ogre Creek, but did you ever dig into that one, how, how that nomenclature came about? Oh, absolutely. I actually have uh, like seven named items in the uh, upper Clackamas that I've looked into. Ogre Creek was named by a group of early lumber guys. Uh, what do they call those guys that go out first? One of them walked around a... Uh, a corner and here's an ogre standing there looking at him and ogre creek is not to be confused with ochre creek which means pink creek ochre creek is about two miles north of ogre creek uh so it's definitely named for ogre yeah so basically a sasquatch yeah sasquatch yeah and uh round lake there was a big incident there from I talked to uh, one of the people involved when he was 15 or 16 years old when it took a 17-mile hike to go into Round Lake. And him and his, two of his friends were basically attacked by one of these things. No way. Oh, way, yeah. It was way, man. Now, now Round Lake, that's a, isn't that in uh, Bull of the Woods wilderness area? Is yeah, that it's, close, it's close to the Bull of the Woods, yes. So what happened? How, the, how were they attacked? Oh, the thing uh, got real upset with them for starting a fire, and uh, one of them was not feeling well, so he was at camp and started throwing rocks and brush at them and uh, yelling at them. And the other two were fishing out on the lake, and so they finally paddled in, and 
they spent that night there, but then they packed up and took off. And when they got to the uh, trailhead, which is now uh, the start of the uh, Colowash River Road with Highway uh, 40, what is it, 46, there was a Forest Service waiting for them because they were mad because they started a fire in August and the lookout towers had seen it. And his parents were there because they were afraid they were going to get arrested. And uh, the Forest Service guy, and I, I talked to this guy three times, so I know what he said. He said, don't worry about the hermits. The Forest Service people call them the hermits. Don't worry about the hermits. They might scare you, but they won't hurt you. And what year was that in, Joe, about? About 1950 or 55. Somewhere in that range. is before they started punching roads through their log. I know that. Well, Joe, thank you so much for coming on and spending the time with us. Um, again, I'll say it. The, you were my idol for a long, long time. Um, checking out the internet and your, your website, your early website. Um, I used to go there for information and I'd read about your exploits. Um, and read about all these other people who now I personally know as friends, which is great. Um, so it's kind of neat. Again, your idols can become your friends in Bigfooting, and that's one of the special things about a field like this. So thank you for coming on and spending time with Bobo and I. Yeah, Joe, we really appreciate you coming on. I'm sure the uh, audience like hearing you too. And hopefully we get back out there this summer and do a little more squatching up there in the Cascades. Yeah, and then, of course, everybody needs to buy Joe's book. Yeah, so if, if you're interested in Bigfoots in the, um, in the outside of the Portland area, specifically on the Clackamas River, you have to get Joe's book. There's no other way around it. It's called The Oregon Bigfoot Highway, um, and it, it is the best book on this specific area that has ever been written. And I, I don't say those words lightly, but uh, it's totally true. We sell a ton of them here in the North American Bigfoot Center store. Um, they're available online usually. You can pick one up, get them, get them wherever. It doesn't matter. Just get it. Um, and you can see what Joe's been up to for the last few decades. Um, um, he's been researching a long time and he's been uh, generous enough with his information to publish it in a book for the rest of us. So Joe, thank you very much. And, um, uh, I look forward to seeing you soon. I always look forward to seeing your good music. Your museum is excellent. And Bobo elbow bumps, buddy, this day and age. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Joe, and give your best to your wife, Sharon, for us. And we hope you see you this summer. And thanks for tuning in, folks. Hit share, hit like, and we'll see you next week. Until then, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 